Perhaps you could turn to Matthew again, chapter 16. And we're going to carry on this time from verse 13 and go up to verse 18. So I'll read it to you and, uh, and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. Remember what we said yesterday, that this is uh, a special moment in the story of Jesus' career. Uh, his friendship with these 12 disciples has got to a, a climax and he wants to ask them to follow him into the next adventure. It's kind of the, the closing stage of his time with them. And so he's bringing them a new challenge. And uh, as you'll find out in the next couple of days, he's going he's gonna to bring it strong. And uh, it's a bit like a, a great revolutionary leader gathering a group of loyal soldiers and saying, we are going for broke. We are going to do something great. We are going to lay our lives down. I have a great cause. I have a great plan. And I want you to know what that plan is so that we can go into it in strength and we can go into it together. Uh, it's a revolutionary chapter, Matthew chapter 16, which is why I wanted to go through it closely over these mornings that we have together at New Day. So I'll read to you again uh, from chapter 16, but now verses 13 to 18. Sorry, um, uh, yeah, yeah, verse 13 to 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together first of all. Father, we ask you now to send your spirit in a particular way to help us to learn more about the plans that your son has for his kingdom and for our lives. And I pray that you would give us soft hearts so that we would respond with courage and faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you three reasons why it's difficult for people today to really know who Jesus is and what he is about. Three reasons why people today will find it tricky to really understand Jesus and his cause. Uh, the first of them is, is the fact that uh, people are generally suspicious about the Bible suspicious just about its trustworthiness. There's a general suspicion towards whether or not a book that was written so many years ago about events that happened in such a different culture and context can actually be trustworthy right now. Now this is a major problem for many of us here and all of our friends who are, who are not in church. This is a major hassle for people who really want to investigate whether Jesus is, is, is worth 
knowing and understanding. Now, the bad news for, for this session is that I'm not going to actually deal with this problem in this session, only because I've only got time to deal with the other two. But I will mention to you one way to deal with this. If you're someone who, who actually, you personally, you, you struggle to know whether or not you can actually trust the testimony of this book about Jesus. Well, last night I mentioned a book uh, by our friend Andrew who spoke to us. I'm going to mention actually another one. Uh, this book is called Unbreakable. It's also by Andrew. It's a lot shorter. It's a lot cheaper. And it's extremely helpful. You can read it in about an hour or less, in fact. But it will give you so much information and help in terms of this whole issue of why is it that we treat the Bible with so much respect why do we take what these people who wrote so many centuries ago so seriously? Why do we believe it? And that's an important question. You need to know the answer to that question, if not for yourself, then for your friends who will ask you. And anyone who's got any sense will be asking that question these days. And I think Andrew's little book called Unbreakable is maybe one of the best short ways of answering that question I've ever seen. So do get hold of that if you think that will help you. But let me move on then to the second of the three. The first problem is a problem of suspicion. The second reason we have a problem with really knowing who Jesus is and what he came to do is what I would call the problem of obscurity. Obscurity. And what I mean by this is that the things that Jesus has on his mind, the things that he's passionate about, according to the books of, of the Bible that describe his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are things that most people in 21st century Europe would not particularly be interested in. We're not in the same time in history and the same place as he was in, and so the things he's excited about are things that don't particularly occur as, as important to us. One of the ways that people in, in more recent history have tried to get around this problem is they said, well, we do like Jesus in a way, we respect him, we know it's important to respect Christianity because it's done so many important things and some really good things, and we know that Jesus was a very important person and he led a very good life. We don't believe that he's the son of God, we don't believe all those supernatural things about him, but we do believe that he's very important. So what we're going to do is we're going to investigate Jesus from a historical point of view and try as hard as we can to, to understand what he was really like and what he really cared about so that we can learn as much as possible from him for our own times. And over the last 100, 200 or so kind of years, this, this enterprise, this kind of study has taken off quite a lot. But the thing that tends to happen, if you look into what gets called the quest for the historical Jesus, is people, they say that they want to really investigate Jesus and kind of brush away the cobwebs and really get to know who he really was. But when they come to describe what they think they found out about him from looking at history carefully, they tend to end up describing for us a Jesus who looks remarkably like them. So, you know, people who lived in 18th century Germany would end up with a kind of an 18th century German Jesus. People who lived in 19th century Britain would, would end up with a kind of Victorian civilizer of the world called Jesus. 
people in the 1960s would end up with a kind of hippie. You know, he had long hair and wore sandals, so that's what he was. He was a, you know, he was a nice hippie giving out flowers. That's what Jesus was. And all these different kinds of uh, voices have come up over the years saying, well, we think Jesus is like this, and we think Jesus is like that. And, and you tend to have to take it with a very large dose of salt because you're, you're, you're going to see basically people trying to steal Jesus and make him theirs because they, they want to lift him off the pages of history and say, well, he belongs to our age, really. And the truth is, and, and really the, the, the best studiers, the best scholars have, have ended up saying at the end of the day, time and time again, you can't do that. You just can't do that. If we're honest with ourselves, Jesus definitely belongs to his time. His message is for a particular time and space. He's not talking just about the things we care about. So today, in 21st century England, Scotland, Wales, the kind of Jesus that people might imagine would be a kind of a, you know, a BBC Jesus, a, a Jesus of kindness and tolerance, a Jesus of being a nice person and, and, and being good to other people. And that was basically his message. And, you know, we, we, we imagine him being fairly kind of politically correct and having good manners and quite middle class. And, and you know, that, that's the kind of Jesus we really want there to be. That's the kind of social Jesus that gets thrown up by our kind of culture. But then we look at this book, we look at the pages of the descriptions by the people who actually saw him in action, the kind of eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts that we have here, and we see someone who's actually concerned about some very specific things. He talks a lot, for example, about the kingdom of God. And in fact, when he asks his friends to say, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. We translate that with the Greek word, you are the Christ. Same thing. You are the Messiah. And we don't really know much about Messiahs in 21st century Europe. But for these people, for Jews in the first century, that was a pregnant word. That was a word that carried a lot it was a powerful, explosive, dynamic word. You say that word in, in public and people looked at you because it, it, it caused a sort of glow and spark of hope and excitement and maybe a certain defiance and rebellion to grow in people's hearts when they heard the word Meshua, as they would have pronounced it. You are the Messiah, Peter says. This is a first century Jewish person. And what's also interesting to me is when he says to them, who do people say that I am? Out there in the culture, what's my brand doing at the moment? You know, if you hashtag Jesus, what kind of words come back out there at the moment? And the, the disciples say to him, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you are Jeremiah. And some people say that you are John the Baptist. That is quite an interesting trio. If you stop and think about it, if you, if you know a little bit about those three people, you would agree with me that they have some very unusual things in common. They were all very fiery people. They were, quite a lot of the time, angry they were people who had a kind of a wild look in their eye. They were people whose message was a message of judgment, a message of destruction, 
of fire coming down from heaven and destroying the enemies of God and God bringing an end to everything and smashing down the kingdoms of this world and breaking people so that he can have his way and bring in his rule. These were not nice people in that sense, all right? These were not BBC people. They they were not mild-mannered at all. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, these these were strong-minded people with a fiery message. And these are the people that get named when you hashtag Jesus in first century Israel. They think about fiery prophets. That's the kind of image Jesus had. And I reckon it's because it's the kind of message Jesus had. He had a message of judgment. A message of the kingdom of God is about to break in, repent. Everything is about to change. God is about to show up and do something so mighty in my lifetime that it will be the end of all things and everything will start all over again in my lifetime. That's the kind of message he had. You've got to imagine this guy with wild eyes and crazy hair. You know, is that, that's the kind of image that you get. Is that the kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild that maybe we've got used to imagining, you know, in stained glass windows with a blonde beard covered, you know, surrounded with sheep? It's, it's not the image that we tend to have, but it's clearly what the people thought about when they saw him. And we have to therefore be a little bit careful when we look at him and think, well, what, what, what was he, <laughs> what was his mission? What was he so focused on? We can't just lift him out of history. And, and it's kind of polish off that message of doom and judgment as if, it, as if it's not real. No, we, we have to accept the real Jesus that's here. But if you think about it, after all that I've just said about the kind of image that he had of fiery prophet, it leaves us with a really awkward question. Doesn't that mean that Jesus was a failure? Doesn't it mean that, that, that Jesus tried to start some spark of glorious change. He, he predicted that the world was about to change in his lifetime through some massive you know, cosmic transformation of God showing up and sending fire and transforming everything. Well, it didn't happen. In fact, Jesus just got taken off and crucified. Just like many people did by the Romans in those days. He was just treated like a common criminal, like a common rebel. And it all ended in tears. And, and that's, that's really what happened. And therefore we have to accept that however much we admire him, he's, he was a failure. He ultimately failed. He ultimately, his message is irrelevant to us. He was dreaming. He was a dreamer, a visionary. And his vision didn't come true. His dream was not fulfilled. That's the question we have to face. What's what's really going on here? And of course, surely, the question we then have to ask is, have we understood what he meant when he said that God wanted to bring destruction to his enemies and do something powerful and world-changing in Jesus' lifetime to end the kingdom of this world and bring in his kingdom? Certainly the people of his time had a certain idea of what that would look like. If you said to people in first century Israel, the Messiah is coming, bringing the kingdom of God, they would have definitely imagined someone on a horse with a sword. 
They would have imagined a military hero, a new King David, who would take on the Romans and defeat them with miraculous power and put Israel back on the map as chief nation. That's what they expected the Messiah to come and do. And it's interesting, you may have noticed if you've sometimes read in the Bible about how Jesus behaved, sometimes people would publicly shout out at him, we know who you are, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Holy One of God. And you know that Jesus would sometimes say to them, be quiet, be quiet. He kept it a secret for quite a long time. And don't forget, he's actually having this conference with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi, which is a two days walk away from the normal place of action. He's taken them on a long journey because he wants to talk to them about his identity, first of all, in secret. He knows that if he lets fly with the idea that he is the Messiah in a new and strong way, it will be instantly possible for people to get the wrong end of the stick and start arming themselves for insurrection, for violence. And so he has to take them away for two days and say to them, okay, listen, this is who I am But let me tell you what kind of a Messiah I am. Let me tell you what kind of a kingdom I've come to bring. Let me tell you what my life is going to be like. Let me tell you how it will affect me. Let me tell you how it will also affect you. So he's actually bringing in a message that has some subtlety to it, some some unexpected twists to it, that it takes patience and time for us to to get to grips with. And that's why he deliberately takes them away. He takes them to New Day, if you like. He says, right, let's, let's sit down and really talk about me. Let's really talk about the kind of kingdom that I've come to bring. Let's talk, for example, about the kind of enemy that I've come to take down. You see, they they believed that the worst thing in their lives was the inconvenience and the humiliation of an occupying power called the Romans. That was the worst thing. The worst thing for them was the, the, the horror and the, the ignominy, you know, the, the kind of humiliation, the shame of being under another country's power pagan Romans who don't even believe in Yahweh. The Romans have controlled us for years and someone's got, God's got to show up and deal with those people. Deal with our problems. That's what God's here for, isn't he? He's supposed to come and deal with our problems. That's what we expect from him. That's what we expect from his, his rescuer, his saviour, his Meshua. He's going to come and take on our problems and deal with them for us so that we can be put back on the throne of the universe and put there as the people that we should be. God's there to fix our inconveniences. God's there to deal with the trouble in our lives. That's his job. Jesus wants them to understand, and he patiently takes time, really all through his time with them, to help them understand that they have a way, way bigger problem than the Romans. They have a way, way deeper problem than the inconvenience of Rome. The truth is, friends, so do we, right? We have a way bigger problem than the problems that immediately seem important to us in life. The things that we want God to just deal with, deal with, deal with, deal with this. That's what you're for. Come and deal with this thing. Fix this thing. Change this situation. Come on, God. Deal with the problems in my life. Fix them. And and God has a different agenda because he sees a problem that is way more serious 
than we often do, and he's determined to deal with that problem as a priority. He will even use the other problems that we see as the big problem as the means by which he will deal with the real problem under the surface. He'll allow things to happen in our lives. He'll even bring things into our lives that we think, this can't be right, this can't be right. But it's actually God's way of trying to deal with the deeper problems. And what about the thing that, you know, he was going to deal with this enemy of God's people in his lifetime. He was going to come and bring an end to the kingdoms of this world in his lifetime. Jesus says that kind of thing. The kingdom of God is at hand now. Some of you will live to see the kingdom come in power. Well, you see, if the enemy, if the real problem is actually the problem of sin, if the real problem is a problem of idolatry that we've been talking about the last couple of days in different ways, in different messages, then that's the very thing that Jesus did deal with. He really did bring fire upon the earth. He really did bring destruction. He really did take the battle to his enemy. He really did, just like a David, just like a Meshua, just like a great leader, take out the greatest Goliath of all, the problem of evil, the problem of sin, the problem of death, the problem of shame, the greatest problem of all, the last enemy, the Bible calls it, and defeated that enemy upon the cross. That's what Jesus did. That's what our Messiah did. Jesus understood the real problem. And just as we've been singing about earlier, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus upon the cross dealt the absolute and final blow of destruction to his enemy and to ours. And he's done it. And it means that we live in the good of it. We might say, well, the world isn't a better place yet. We've still got problems and difficulties. We've got terrorism We've got, we've got fear. We've got all kinds of uh, messages going around the world of, of, of worry. We've got economies going up and down. We've got people living in all kinds of, of, of conflict situation and war zones. Surely the kingdom of God hasn't come completely. Listen, this is the thing that we who know Jesus Christ can know all through the circumstances of life, all through difficulties, all through the things that happen on a global level, we can nevertheless know that Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, has defeated all the power of evil. He's done it. He has done it. We don't yet live in the complete good of it, but he has really done it. Back in the 1940s, when there was a, the, the, the Second World War, which dragged on for years between the Allies and the Axis, from 1939 to 45, we were at war. There came a point in June 1944 when, when the Allied forces invaded Normandy and took the battle to the Germans who were, who were occupying France. And from that point on, early June 1944, it was obvious that the war was about to be won. It still took about 13 months, <laughs> no, 11, 11 months for the war to finish. It took a long time still. It was a long time of it actually being properly followed through. But anyone who knew anything knew. When D-Day happened, everything had changed. The decisive blow had happened and everything was going to change from this point on. Listen, friends, when Jesus died upon the cross and rose from the dead, he took on himself and defeated the power of sin and death forever, for all time. We live on the good side of that. 
We, we suffer, we struggle, we work hard in a, in a context where all kinds of things can happen, but we can know even while they're happening that Jesus the Messiah has won. He has won forever. And one day, one day, the war will be complete in every sense. And the victory he won at the cross will be shown as final. And everyone will see. Every mouth will stop. Everyone will agree that Jesus is the winner. This is the kind of Messiah that he is. This is the kind of plan that he wanted to bring to them. This is a massive thing for us to come to terms with. He's in the business of setting up a kingdom that's changing the world. You realize it is happening, right? Even now, it is happening. We might feel in countries like England and, and Scotland and Wales and countries represented in this room that, you know, the Christianity is still quite small. New Day is quite big while you're here. But you know that, you know, you go home and you feel like you're the only Christian in school. You're the only Christians in your, in your, uh, your neighborhood. And you feel like a minority. You need to understand that is not the story. Globally, the gospel of Jesus Christ is moving forward at a rapid pace. There are parts of the world where the church is growing faster than the birth rate. You know that they say that by 2030, there will be 200 million Chinese Christians. By 2030. Do you know that the country in the world with the fastest proportional rate of church growth, Iran. Iran. (laughs) That always shocks people when I say it because it's the last country you expect the church to be growing in. It's just like kind of walled up to heaven with, with militant Islamists. Listen, Jesus is on the throne. He is building a glorious church. His kingdom can't be stopped. The Messiah has won. And he's about doing a great work, even now. D-Day has happened. The war is being won. This is what we're a part of. Don't don't be lied to and conned into a position of, of kind of spiritual inferiority by the times in which we live. Jesus has succeeded. Let me let me talk finally, though, about the third reason that we find it difficult to understand him and understand what he's about. And that's a very simple problem of our blindness. It's kind of what is going on in verse 17. When Peter gets the idea and says, you are the son of God. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. (laughs) He's saying to him, listen, you could never have worked this out, Peter. You could never have worked this out, Homer Simpson. This is not your uh, ability that's shining here. You're not the kind of insightful scholar that people might think. I know you, Peter. I know that this was revealed to you by my father. God showed you. God opened your eyes. And friends, this is the issue for everyone. Everyone needs God to open their eyes. Everyone needs the Holy Spirit to work to Deal with the blindness that we have towards God. The tendency that we have to miss the point. To miss who he is. Now you might say, well therefore what can we do? What part is there for us to play? If it's up to God to reveal his son Jesus to me. More and more and more. Do I just sit there and and allow him to do it passively? No, the answer is you seek him all the more. You pursue him. Remember what God said to the crowds The voice of God the Father when Jesus was being baptized. My beloved son in whom I am pleased. And then when Jesus was being transfigured on a mountain, he said, the voice came saying, this is my son, listen to him. There's places in in the Bible where God speaks about his son and says, behold my servant. This is God's message to us all the time. 
he's always saying to us, look at my son. Look at my son. Keep your eyes fixed on my son. Behold him, follow him, understand him, pursue him. Listen, how does this work practically? It honestly works practically by us reading our Bibles. Just reading our Bibles. You might think, well, that's just such an ordinary, mundane thing to do. It isn't. This is the voice of God. God speaks when you open the page of your Bible, and he speaks to you about his son. And we may find it difficult to understand our Bible. Sometimes we find it difficult to be excited by our Bible because we get stuck in Leviticus or we get bored by the list of names in First Chronicles and we think, well, this is tedious. I won't go any further. But this is where we need to be humble and say, God, help me to see your son in this book. Help me to persevere. The book of Proverbs says it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. It is the glory of kings to seek them out. And to go with your Bible for a time every day, not so you can top up your score like I was saying yesterday and have the yeast of the Pharisees in your life, which you don't want, but to go to your Bible saying, I want to see Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to have the Holy Spirit reveal him to me. You cannot really do that properly without knowing him through the Scriptures. This is one of the reasons I think it's right to take time in your Bible every day, as often as you can. To get to know him. Even if for a while it's difficult, hard to understand, don't quit. Don't yield because of that. Trust that you will see him. Let me show you one picture that gives me an example of how this generation needs to be careful on this. Let me just show this photograph. And maybe you've seen this, but this kind of struck me when I saw it a few weeks ago. Now, I don't quite know what's going on. To be fair to these people, they may actually be looking at something that's to do with this painting here. But it's a famous painting in a famous place in Amsterdam that you can go to. Where, where basically you know, people will come from over the world to see this painting by Rembrandt. What's going on here is some people are kind of missing the main point of the room. And honestly, I think we can spend our lives doing this. When God puts his son in front of us and says, behold my son, listen to my son. Friends, don't be stuck being distracted by the latest thing on your phone, in your life, in your relationships, to the point where you don't give priority time to beholding Jesus. Make sure that he's got the focus of your attention. Let me just say one more thing. I want to close with this, and perhaps the musicians could come and join me. I want to point out the last thing that Jesus says here, because it's so, it is so powerful. Remember that when Peter says to him, you are the Christ, Jesus says to, to Peter, or he says it to Simon, as he is originally called, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, And then he says, you are Peter. You are Peter. He gives him a new name. The word Peter just means rock. You are the rock. Gives him a brand new name. The thing that's striking about this is that when you get to see who Jesus really is yourself, when you get to understand his identity, you see his worth. His, his goodness, his greatness. When you see his love, when you see his compassion, when you get to see Jesus in his power, his majesty, his victory, his absolute supremacy on the throne of the universe. And his actual, genuine care for you. 
when you start to understand him, you actually also start to understand who you are. So you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, and you, I tell you, you're Peter. That's who you are. I'm telling you who you are. I am telling you who you are. God can do that. He, he does that all over this book. He tells people who they really are. Gives them new names very often. He's saying, this is who you think you are, but I know who you are. Do you realize that God can do that with you? He's, he, he knows you better than you know yourself anyway. He knows your identity completely. We don't really know ourselves. We think we do, right? We really think very easily. We imagine that we know ourselves. We don't even know the back of our own heads, right? We don't even really know the sound of our own voices. You ever listen to yourself being played back? You hear yourself through a microphone like I do now? I think, I don't sound like that. It's not my voice. You think you know yourself. You don't really know yourself. Not completely. Your friends know you better than you do in some ways. Your mum and dad, they know you better than you do in some ways. Who really knows you? You? Your creator knows you best. He knows you completely. And he comes to you and he says, this is who you are. He gives you identity. He gives you a name. He says, this is who you have been. I tell you, I know you. This is what I see. I, I have five children. Being a dad is a great privilege. One of the biggest privileges that a man can have is to see a human being come out into the world and say, she's going to be called this. He's going to be called that. I get to say it. I get to choose it. That's the name they have. That's the handle that people have on them for years to come. God gave us a name at the start of history. He spoke. He said, you are Adam. And we disobeyed God. We walked off. We ran away. In Adam, we all fell. God cried out, Adam, Adam. He called our name. Adam, come back. Come back. Adam hid from him. And ever since, the, the hiding, rebellious human race has been renaming itself. Renaming itself. Giving itself new identity. All the time. Often the wrong identity. This generation is the most labeled generation, I reckon, in history. You got words like dyslexic over you, anorexic over you, learning difficulties over you. That's 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 a name. You take it on. You think that's that's who I am. That's who I am. And you hit a stage in your life where you make terrible mistakes and, and you allow that to be your identity. I, that's who I am. I'm the guy that did that. That's who I really am. I'm the girl that did that. That's who I really am. That's what people think of me. That's what they think. That's what I must be. We think, who, who am I really? We try to find identity in so many things, in our sexuality and our political opinions. We're trying to just grope for some sense of who can I be? But your creator has the ability and the authority and the unique right to say, this is who you are. And we find out who we are as we come to Christ. We come to Jesus and we find a father 
who tells us who we are, gives us a new name, gives us a new destiny, new hope and privileges. I'm going to ask you, as the band lead us in a song of response, to draw near to God again. I'm going to pray for you. Can we just stand while I pray while we're doing it? Father, we want to welcome you now. Speak to us. Speak to your children again about who we are truly, about the identity that you want us to have. In Jesus' name. Let's sing together.